But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, and brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning, and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome was would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, 
we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, I think one thing that comes to mind is expectations. As I've been pondering this text and thinking about preaching this text, I guess I'll ask you, if you are a fish, would you expect to fly? You wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't expect to fly very far. You might be a flying fish. But I think you know what I mean. And I think as we go through today's text, I believe what we're going to discover is that we don't have the proper expectations. We think we're fish, but we're birds meant to fly. And perhaps by God's grace, through the preaching of His Word, not just here but elsewhere, the church of the living God will once again understand what and who we are in this earth. Commentary says, an authentic church acts by order of God and on behalf of God. The apostles and their successors are emissaries of Jesus, witnesses of the crucified and risen Lord, preachers of the gospel, teachers of the truth about God, about humankind, about salvation, about restoration and transformation. If and when they act on behalf of God, devoted to His praise and His glory, God can and will act through them, healing the sick, helping the impoverished, liberating those in bondage. For Luke, miracles are a part of the nature of the church. The congregation of God's people is concerned that people come to faith in Jesus so that they are granted salvation and they are concerned that people find help in the midst of everyday challenges of sickness and pain, violence and abuse, unemployment and loneliness, failure and depression both in words and in actions. If and when a congregation lives as the people of God who are being renewed and transformed, it will enjoy the privilege of being part of God's mission, the God who seeks and finds the lost. So today in today's text, of course you see the title is God's presence is the thriving church. And I hope that you will pay attention to that title as we go through the sermon, the context, of course, is that great fear has come upon them all, those in the church, those outside the church. And in that context, many signs and wonders, great power comes along with unity. And we again see unity and power together in God's church. And then we see these unbelievers have respect for the church, but from a distance. It's a fearful thing that they've seen. And then we hear about multitudes, again, multitudes of believers being added to the Lord. And note how the growth in the church is called being added to the Lord. This is a, the, the essence, this is the heart, this is the, the, this is the center target of today's sermon from which everything else comes out. We are added to the Lord. And we're going to talk about what that means. And in this we see healings, not just in Solomon's portico anymore, but in the streets of Jerusalem. 
is spreading out from the temple, out in the streets of Jerusalem, and we're told that multitudes from outside Jerusalem are healed, not just of sicknesses, but for the first time, as Jesus, as Jesus had full authority all over all the unclean spirits, and as he told his people, they did too. Now we see that being revealed. The unclean spirits who tormented people are also cast out. So first, the context. Great fear came upon them all. The text says, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So Luke wants us to know, and again, this is kind of going back to last week's sermon, but so you can get caught up in the momentum. Luke wants us to know, the Lord wants us to know that fear, and this is terror. This is, you're afraid God's going to strike you dead. Okay, that's what's going on. This kind of fear, even amongst believers, as we talked last week, our God is a consuming fire. You come to fire to get warm, but if you fall in, you will get burned. Our God is this great mystery as we come to him of great and awesome power and also warmth and tenderness and affection towards us. And so the people outside the church and people with weak faith in the church, this is a terrifying thing. This can keep you from walking in the doors of the back of the church if you think that you might be struck dead for being a hypocrite like Ananias and Sapphira were. So it's not just in the church, it's outside the church as well. So Ananias and Sapphira conspired together, we read this today, to lie to the church. And by doing so, they lied to God. And again, a theme, and this is what's being emphasized today as well. The church is equated with God. They lied to the church. Peter says you lied to God. Today, they're added to the church. The text says they're added to the Lord. See, they were seeking to be seen as mature, these hypocrites, these two scoundrels. They wanted to be seen as humble and wise through their hypocritical action. Instead, they each, one by one, as we read, fall down dead at Peter's feet where they had laid their pretentious proceeds. They're dead. They're next to the money they had laid at Peter's feet. Now, Barnabas, in the end of chapter 4, we didn't read that today, he had carried out a similar action. But, but Barnabas was motivated by true love for God and love for God's church. He was not motivated by self-advancement. He was motivated by God's glory, by the name of Christ being advanced. He was motivated by Christ, love for Christ, and the desire to be a part of Christ's mission. This is what Barnabas was about. And what's he called? He's called the son of encouragement. And so what does he get from the pen of Luke? Praise. Now this is contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira. It's very clear contrast there. And you know the message always in Scripture we see that contrast is which story is your life telling? Both of these events have brought down great fear upon all the believers and upon all who have heard about these things. So something very serious is happening in these people and around these people by God's presence and by God's power. And it continues. Verse 12, we're told, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So you see here again, this healthy, thriving church. You see the combination of this unity and this power occurring at the same time. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. There's no power apart from unity. There's no power apart from unity. And unity is a great miracle that leads to other great miracles. 
So in the midst of this environment of great fear towards God, the Lord brings to pass many signs and wonders through his apostles. And look, now these, these are not done in secret. They weren't having private prayer meetings back in a corner, but this is done openly. It appears, though, right there in the temple, in Solomon's portico, that big porch that we looked at last week that was contiguous with the court of the Gentiles, a giant area there. All the people could come and see these things happening. This is done out in the open, we're told, among the people. God is showing off his great power in his people. Now, the Lord continues to answer the prayer that was raised up by the church in Acts 4, 24 and 30. I've said it before. We see it again. We'll probably say it again throughout the whole book of Acts. So much of the book of Acts can be seen as God answering that prayer when they asked him for boldness and when they asked him to stretch forth his hand and show forth healings and mighty signs and wonders. So much of the book of Acts is that prayer being answered. Here it is. Back from chapter 4. Remember, after they had gone through that first persecution and Peter and John are let go and they come back to their people, back to their own, back to their companions, and they get together and this is the prayer after they hear what they're going through. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done for the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So God is doing this. Remember, they were severely threatened to stop speaking, stop teaching in Jesus' name. They had to have this Holy Spirit boldness. Remember, this is the group that was scattered and ran away just months earlier. Peter lied about even knowing Jesus. This is the same people who are now demonstrating this kind of courage before that same council, recall, that killed Jesus. Same people. So you don't, you, and Jesus says, go to Jerusalem. That's where you go to that same place where they gathered me up and they killed me. That's where you're going to go. And he said, take up your cross and follow me, didn't he? So you know they had to have been expecting this kind of thing to come to pass. And yet they knew that these people are nothing compared to the risen Savior and Prince, Jesus Christ. And they trusted in Him. And they did as well. So this is unfolding. We get another description. Luke presents miraculous healings and other signs and wonders as a normal part of the ongoing life of the church. We're going to look at the a couple of the prior descriptions of the body that we get throughout the book of Acts. You've seen these moments where Luke pauses and gives this kind of overall description. We're going to look at those today. But one thing that we see is that miraculous healings, signs and wonders, are a normal part of the ongoing life of the church. We're not fish. We're birds. Do you understand that when we are in Christ and He is in us, and we are loving Him and serving Him in the power of His Holy Spirit, we should expect unity and power like this in our midst. These mighty signs and wonders are the same kinds of miraculous acts that Jesus did while He was walking on the earth. And it's important for us to kind of remember this 
And always keep this in mind. This is Jesus who is doing this. This is the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ who's pouring out His Holy Spirit in His people and He is the one who's doing it. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. You see that? That word began. That's what Jesus began to do and teach. And basically what the author is saying is, now I'm going to go on to tell you what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. Well, where's Jesus? Well, he's ascended on his throne in heaven, isn't he? But where else is Jesus? Look around. Jesus is you and me. We are literally and mysteriously his body in the earth. And he works through us and we are his hands. We are his feet. We are his voice to this world. So that's what we need to remember. Jesus is doing this. He began to do mighty deeds and through his church he continues his mighty deeds. His hand still stretches forth and touches bringing heaven's kingdom's power to earth. Look at your own hands. These are the hands that now reach out in Jesus' name. We can be Jesus' hands. Look at your feet. You go where he tells you to go. We can now be Christ's feet. Speaking, you can speak Christ's words. Loving, you can have Christ's heart. Thinking, you can have Christ's mind. You can be Christ in the earth. We together are to be Christ in the earth. Jesus began to teach of the kingdom of God and through his church, he still speaks of his kingdom by his word and by his spirit. His voice still goes out to this world via his church, by his word and by his spirit. Next, these signs and wonders have been a part of the ongoing life of the church since the beginning and they continue as the fear of God rests upon them and all the people. So Luke wants us to see this wasn't just a one-time event. This wasn't just that mighty day of Pentecost. This is, we're starting to see this is the normal life of the healthy, thriving church walking in faith towards Christ, committed together to his mission and to the true faith. Now, these signs and wonders are again connected with the heart and mind unity of the church. The signs and wonders are connected with the heart and mind unity of the church. These things go together. They are all together. These people, they're all together in one place. They're not zooming it in from home because they're afraid to get sick. They are all together in one place, sharing the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. Okay, and of course, there's a time to stay home when you're sick. You know, I know. But not what we did in our culture a year ago, a year and a half ago. So what did he do? He taught them during 40 days after his resurrection. And during this time, What did he start with? He started with a terrified, scattered group of people who thought they were going to get murdered next on the tree. That's what he started with, who did not understand who he was. After three years with him, they didn't get it. He comes back from the dead. He draws them in. He teaches them during 40 days, and he turns them into this band of 120 at at the beginning of the book of Acts. He brought this previously scared and scattered crew into fearless unity and love and service to him. Remember his commission to them shortly before his ascension, brothers and sisters. Please, I hope you're thinking, here he goes again. He's going to read Luke 24 again. Yeah, we're going to be, hopefully you're going to memorize it because this is the mind and the heart of Christ that he gave to them during those 40 days 
that gripped them, that owned their souls, that directed their thoughts and their hearts and their hands and their feet in everything they did. Should be true for us too, right? Here's what it says. Then he said to them, so he's, he's, he's back from the dead, right? He's resurrected. This is right before his ascension. This is during that time where he's brought this scattered crew and he's bringing them together and, and making them one. He says to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Brothers and sisters, when you read about them being of one mind, when you read about them being of one accord, go back to this text. This text shows you what their one accord was all about. They had one faith. Jesus Christ is the Messiah foretold of old in Scripture who had to suffer and die for the sins of his people upon the Roman cross, who was resurrected, vindicated in his resurrection from the dead by the Father, and then after teaching, after teaching his disciples during 40 days, he ascended on high, and he lives by the power of an indestructible life, and he reigns at his Father's right hand over all things. And all men everywhere are called to repent and bow the knee and profess him as Lord and King. This is the faith. This is the one faith that has been delivered to us that they had in their minds together. They knew this man Jesus was. They knew that he was more than just a man. They knew that he was God and that he had come and conquered death, hell, and the devil. And that there was no force that could stand against him. And they loved him. They loved him, y'all. They wanted to know him and be near him and to serve him. This is what drove their lives is their love and their devotion to Christ and His kingdom, and they wanted everyone to know. Let that be true for us too, yes? It's not just the faith, though, that had the one accord. It was also their actions. They had a plan. They had a mission together, and that is preaching and testifying for them as witnesses to this one faith to all nations beginning at Jerusalem for the purpose of unto repentance and the remission of sins. So it's not hard to understand. They knew what they were supposed to say. They knew where they were supposed to say it. And they expected to see the same things happening around them that happened around Jesus while he was still walking the earth. And, and they are. They're happening. Now, as I said, let's go ahead and recall together the primary sections in Acts that describe the healthy, thriving church. It says two there, but I put in one from Acts 1 as well. It's a brief. It's not a full description. But then you'll see from Acts 2 and Acts 4... We've looked at those before, but just read them again and see the themes. See the thing that Luke wants us to see about God's church that's true over and over again. First, Acts 1, verses 12 through 14. And remember, shortly after this prayer, Peter preaches, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas, and then Pentecost occurs. Okay? Here's the text. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, so Jesus has just been ascended, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So there it is. The start of it all after his ascension. 
one accord in prayer and supplication. That's where it starts. Acts 2, after Pentecost, description of the church after this great moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So Peter's preached at this point in time. People have come to faith. And this is now the description of this church that's no longer just this church from the upper room. Now, 3,000 souls were added. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily, here it is again, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's other themes there too. But to connect to today's text, you see unity and power together. Next, more recently that we looked at from Acts chapter 4, now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each one, each as anyone had need. And then right after this, we get the description of Barnabas as a a singular example of this, probably the leader in this. So you can see, over and over again, Luke wants us to see these themes that are present, these realities that are a part of when Jesus indwells his church. When the people of the church are so closely identified with Christ and what he wants, with Christ and who he is, that they are his hands. They are his feet. They are his voice. This is what it begins to look like. So what happens next? Unbelievers have respect from a distance. Text says, yet none of the rest there join them, but the people esteem them highly. You look at the various options. Who are these none of the rest? Well, it, by just deduction, thinking it through, the unbelieving Jewish people. It has to be the unbelieving Jewish people, and perhaps there were some non-Jews present, but just the unbelieving people around them. Before the shocking deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, it appears the unbelieving Jews remained apt to come near and to talk with the believers, to mingle in their midst without too much concern for their own safety. But now, after two pretenders drop dead in the midst of this church, the unbelievers, not really fully aware of what's happening probably and not really wondering how to stay alive in the midst of these, not knowing how to stay alive in the midst of these people, they kind of keep their distance. They back off a little bit and say, Wow, wow, what's going on? Yet, even as they stay back a bit, the unbelieving Jews still had great respect for the church. Now, on the one hand, maybe it's just they think if they talk bad at the church, maybe they'll drop dead even from a distance. Or maybe it's they see how much they're loving one another and looking after each other and sharing everything with one another and taking care of all the people around them. Maybe it's the great power of the healings. Maybe it's the boldness of their preaching in spite of the death threats from the Sanhedrin, we don't know. Or maybe it's just a great gift of God that he gives favor for his church. We don't know. 
The love of the believers for one for another, the fellowship, the powerful preaching, the shared community, the peace and the unity, the power of God upon them, all of these things caused the world to realize something noteworthy was happening. And yet the world would not notice that unless the God, the God of the universe gave them that. Because, you know, for this, all those same reasons, we see that the Sanhedrin, as we go on, hates them, right? So the people in God's grace are granted favor towards the church as the leaders of the apostate Jewish world hate them. Commentary says, people who were merely curious were hesitant to approach the congregation and thus kept themselves at a safe distance. While the people who had been seized with fear when they heard of the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira kept at a distance from the congregation of believers who were meeting in Solomon's portico, they spoke highly of the followers of Jesus. All fear and the expression of a favorable opinion are not mutually exclusive, but often connected. But I do think we need to see this as more of God's grace. This is more of God's grace. This is more of what happens when Jesus is walking in the midst of his people. And they are walking in the midst of him. And they're going forth in the power of his spirit by his word, doing his will. This is more of what happens. He gives favor to the people around them. What happens next? Multitude of believers were added to the Lord. The church grew greatly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So even in the midst of this esteem from a distance that these unbelievers were carrying out, remember they're, they're kind of watching from a distance, even in the midst of that, multitudes of those very people are still coming to faith in Christ. Somehow, through gaining faith in Christ, they're drawn to this group of people that terrify them. And they come to faith in Christ. And that terror is overcome. Because they come to understand probably why Ananias and Sapphira got struck down. And why Barnabas is to be praised. But I want us to also note the distinguishing mark of Christians gives them their name in this section and throughout history. Not just Christians, but believers. Believers. It's so simple. They came to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They came to believe that he had died on the cross for their sins. They had come and they had confessed their own sins to God and trusted in Christ's death on the cross for them individually. They became believers that their own sins were forgiven. Has that happened in your life? Have you confessed your sins to God and trusted in Christ's death upon the cross for you? That's what was happening. In droves, people were saying, my sins are forgiven. Praise be to God. The Savior has come. He's raised from the dead. I don't need to fear death. I want to tell everybody. I want to be with these people. I want to follow Jesus. So believers were increasingly added. Now this phrase, increasingly added, is worth noting and thinking about. It really means even more than before. So the church is growing very quickly, even faster than it had during prior descriptions. So this isn't like a linear thing for you math guys out there. This is, this is geometric, okay? This is, this, is, this is synergistic growth is what we're seeing here, okay? And that's why, you know, when this, things like this are happening, we can see, and we know from history, multiplied dozens upon dozens of millions of people were saved throughout the entire known world at that time. That's why we can read in scriptures that the gospel had gone out before the Bible was finished, in 8060 something, 
before the last word of the canon was, was written, the, we're told in the Bible that the gospel had gone out to the whole world. This is how. Because it's everybody telling everybody they know, everybody traveling, everybody telling everybody they know. Commentary says the term more than has a comparative meaning. More Jews than ever came to faith in Jesus as Lord as the risen and exalted Messiah and Savior. In view of the numbers given in chapter 2, verse 41, that's 3,000. And in four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, that's 5,000. This plural word here, large numbers, multitudes, should be interpreted in terms of many hundreds, if not many thousands of Jews who became believers in Jesus at this time. So what is happening here is this one little church of 120 through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of one accord, one mind, in prayer before God, not giving way to all the difficulties associated with persecution, not giving way to all the difficulties associated with church growth, not giving way to all the difficulties associated with hypocrisy in their midst. Instead, they are growing faster than can really be described. Now, part of the sermon here, added to the Lord. Note that being added to the church is equivalent to being added to the Lord. I want you to see here how Luke equates Jesus with his people. Remember indeed, we are the body of Christ. I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by. So, when we are walking in the Spirit, it really is the mind and the heart and the hands of Jesus himself living in us and through us. So we can say that Christ himself, he is the thriving church. Yes, he creates the thriving church, but he creates the thriving church by more of himself. More of Jesus in us and through us. You die to sin more each day, and Christ comes to life in you and through you more each day through sanctification. And when a people are devoted to Him in them and through them, this is what happens. As Christ, only as Christ animates, as Christ Himself animates and controls us together by His Spirit and by His Word, will we know this kind of beautiful and wondrous experience of being the thriving, healthy, powerful church. You know, they used to say people were nuts for talking about going to the moon. And I, for one, still believe we did go to the moon. Okay? Um, now, but you know, they were nuts when they first started talking about this. You're crazy. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that I think a lot of us think, we're, think, oh, you're crazy that we could ever see a church like this again. Please don't think that way. We've been fish for so long, you know? And, and, and I think the scriptures are calling us to a different view of who we can be. Commentary says, believers are added to the Lord Jesus, joined to Him, and so joined to His mystical body from which nothing can separate us and cut us off, but that which separates us and cuts us off from Christ Himself. What can separate us from Christ Himself? Nothing. Not even your own unfaithfulness. Many have been brought to the Lord, and yet there is room for others to be added to Him, added to the number of those that are united to Him, and additions will still be making till the mystery of God shall be finished and the number of the elect accomplished. Next, we see the text telling us both men and women. 
Luke emphasizes to us here both men and women coming as believers. There were men who had faith in Christ and women who had faith in Christ, emphasizing the faith of Christ granted to both brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, not allowing any room for confusion that faith is an individual thing. It's not just for households. It is for households. It is individual. Each of you, each of you are called to confess your sins to God and to trust in Christ as your Savior. Each and every one of you, man or woman, boy or girl. And to know that we are co-heirs with Christ. Men are not more valuable. Women are not more valuable to God. We are co-heirs together in Christ equally valued and loved in his eyes before God. Commentary says, Notice is taken of the conversion of men as well of, of women as well men, more noticed than generally was in the Jewish church, in which they neither received the sign of circumcision nor were obliged to attend the solemn feasts. So you see, in this particular situation, Matthew Henry is referencing that baptism is now extended to all. The sign of the covenant now is for all. And the court of the women was one of the outer courts of the temple. But as among those that followed Christ while he was upon earth, so among those that believed on him after he went to heaven, great notice was taken of the good women. So brothers and sisters, we're gathered together today before the throne of God together. You know, we weren't just, we weren't just speaking metaphorically when we said we lift up our hearts. We really all have seats in heaven right now. Each and every one of us lifted up before the throne of God in his presence because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women seated together in heaven. Next, what happens? There are healings in the streets of Jerusalem. So not only is the church growing faster than it ever has, not only have the healings and powerful things been taking there at the temple, taking place at the temple, it's spreading. Apparently Solomon's portico may have been too full or too far for some to bring their sick for healing. The text says, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. Now it's likely these are those who had come to faith in Christ or who were coming to faith in Christ. Think of it. Imagine this. The streets of this amazing city filled, covered with people on beds and couches looking to Christ for healing. Now the commentary gives an interesting insight. Jews living in Jerusalem carried sick relatives and friends out of their houses into the streets. It seems that the large number of thousands of believers made it impractical to carry all the sick people up to the temple complex up there to Solomon's portico. The term translated as streets, this Greek word denotes a wide road or street. In Jerusalem, the main street which ran from northwest to south, leading from the new city via the Tripoian Valley to Robinson's Arch at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, this street was 10 meters wide, paved with stone slabs measuring 2 by 4 meters that had a sewer underneath it. Most of the other streets, though, were narrow and without pavement. <coughs> so it gives you, I think, a little bit of a visual of kind of what was probably going on in that giant street at that time. Can you imagine being somewhere? People are just bringing their sick out and laying them on the ground. And what are they hoping for? Well, they're hoping just for Peter's shadow to pass over. Of course, they wanted more than a shadow, but they really believed in the power of God through his church. 
There's no certainty that Peter's shadow actually healed anyone. The text doesn't say that. certainly suggests it. But what is certain is that God had granted esteem and influence to his apostles, to his church, to such an extent that even their shadow was connected in the minds of the people with great power. Now, this should remind us of a couple of things. Commentary says, in Luke 8.44, a woman believed that if she touched the fringe of Jesus' robe, she would be healed. Was she healed, brothers and sisters? Yes, she was. And also, there's this expectation that Paul's handkerchiefs had healing power. That's from Acts chapter 19. We'll get to that. That's also unusual, isn't it? But you see, this is something we should ask ourselves. You know, are you a fish or a bird, right? Because see, when we are flying as the church of God, people want to be near the church. They see the healing. They see what's happening in our midst. They see that we are being healed. We are brought, being brought to healthy marriages and healthy families and healthy relationships and covenant keeping in God's church and love for one another that spills out to where the world goes. Those are the disciples of Jesus because they love each other. And this has to take place, brothers and sisters, in the context of covenantal connection in your local church. This is where it happens. This is what they're seeing. What, what are they seeing? They're not seeing the invisible church. There's no invisible church here. This is the church, visible, together, constituted by Christ, by His Spirit, by His Word, with church leaders, with church members, a visible local assembly underway. We should all long to be a part of such a place. Well, it doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. And so we're beginning to see this outward motion of the gospel in this text today. There's multitudes from outside of Jerusalem who are also healed and it extends from the physical into the spiritual. Now we're seeing the demonic realm brought under the feet of the people of the living God. A multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Were just some of them healed? Were there any spirits that were too powerful? Were there any sicknesses that were too bad? Were there any deformities that were too extensive? They were all healed, brothers and sisters. Two new things occur in Acts here. First, we see for the first time the gospel message reaching those outside Jerusalem. Now, we saw this in the ministry of Jesus throughout Judea, even up into the northern parts, even into the areas of the Gentiles. Secondly, we see unclean spirits brought under the power of God's church in today's text. It's another thing. Do we expect to see through our faithfulness and through the prayers and the actions that we carry out as the people of God in the earth, do we expect to see the demons of hell bound into the abyss and locked up there for good? Can we ask that prayer, saints of God? Should we be asking that prayer? Is there an infinite, are there an infinite number of demons? No. So we keep on praying and eventually what do we expect? All the demons of hell will be locked up in the abyss. Now, the, the, angels are, the angels of heaven, they're not, they're not uh, infinite either, but they're almost innumerable. We're talking about trillions. And may they come and fill the earth, right? So we ask for the demons of hell to be locked in the abyss, and we ask for the angels of heaven to come and surround us and protect us and guide us and lead us and keep the demons of hell away. This is how we should be praying. Commentary says, this is the first notice in Acts which indicates that people from outside Jerusalem were affected by the ministry of the apostles. Luke notes that a large number of people who lived in the towns around the city of Jerusalem also gathered. Now, the commentary makes the claim that the text is unclear enough 
that they may not have been bringing them actually to Jerusalem. It may have been that what the text is saying is that people had gathered the sick together in the little towns and villas around Jerusalem and that the apostles were going out to them. The text leaves room for either of those. Note how the glory and the power of the church in Jerusalem attracts people even from outside their own town. This is something else that happens when Jesus inhabits his church by his spirit and his word and the people are being transformed into his likeness and growing up in unity of mind of heart, laying aside the baubles of this world and devoting themselves to the mission of God is that the world takes notice. The world starts to hear about it. The world starts to draw near and ask questions. Do you understand that God gave the awareness of this? And we remember from the life of Christ that the word spread throughout all the towns and villages of his ministry as well. So, are we that kind of church? You know, that's the kind of thing that happens when a church is like this, is people find out about that church. They, they are drawn to that, especially believers, especially the hurting, especially the sick, especially the tormented. The news is spreading of God's great glory in these people and especially the suffering come to the church for help. Brothers and sisters, how well do we do when the suffering come to us? It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? We really have to believe in the power of Jesus or we're not going to have what it takes to deal with when the suffering comes. The sick and the demon-tormented are drawn to Christ's healing power in his church. They know that he is the answer. And he is the only thing we have to offer. Like Peter said at the very beginning, I don't have any money, but what I have I will give you. And that is how we must walk in this earth, knowing that he dwells in us, and that as we love in his name, he will inhabit that moment. And he will touch people. He will testify by his spirit to the truth of the gospel coming from our lips. He will plow up the hearts and minds of the hearers before we speak the gospel. Brothers and sisters, he is with us. Commentary says, Jews who lived in the various towns of Judea, just like the Jews living in Jerusalem, gathered their sick relatives and friends and brought them to the apostles. Luke specifies that people who were tormented by unclean spirits were also cured by the apostles. And this word unclean spirits probably refers to demons. They are unclean because they are evil and separated from the purity of God and his people. And in antiquity, such terms were used to explain serious psychic disturbances whose causes they were unable to diagnose. The present participle of this word tormented indicates that the torment which was inflicted by evil spirits on some of these people was a permanent condition. That's what they were. They were just tormented people. This Greek participle which separates the sick from those tormented by the unclean spirits, what does it teach us? It indicates that here Luke keeps the two categories of affliction separate. There are those who have physical ailments and there are those who are tormented by demons. And there can be overlap. Luke notes that all who wanted to be healed were actually healed. So as has been our effort all along as we are in God's word is that we want to see what God has been doing in this early church and compare ourselves, compare our church to what's going on there and note the gaps and cry out to God for his kingdom to come from heaven to earth for us to see him 
change us and make us the, the beneficiaries of such wondrous things. So some questions to kind of bring this home for us. Brothers and sisters, do you see in this text the profound significance of how the word of the Lord through the pen of Luke equates Christ himself with his church? And do you understand that this specifically, directly is referencing, brothers and sisters, the visible church? This is not a reference to the invisible church. That church which we are all a part of, which here in a few moments after the sermon I'll reference like I usually do when we confess our faith together. We've all been united together, all who trust in Christ, with Him. And with all the saints throughout history and throughout the whole world. But that's not what is specifically being referenced here. Yes, they were added to that. But they were added to the Lord when they were added to the visible church. Please let that sink in. Please note that one of the very first acts of faithfulness for these Christians was to make themselves members of the visible church. Next. See that to be added to the Lord is to be added to the visible church. And what does this mean practically? It is an active, functioning member. That's what this person becomes. An active, functioning member together with other of God's people in that area, covenantally united together to a specific local assembly. Think of it. The one another's have virtually no meaning whatsoever if you're supposed to go out and carry them out to every single Christian in your whole town. Nobody can do that. The one another's are all given within the specific context, almost all of them, of a letter to a city church or to a group of people. So when you join the church, you're promising to devote yourself to people whose names are on a list. And you want to be on that list with them devoting yourself to them and receiving the blessings of that local assembly. So yes, we are all, hopefully, all of us here, members of the invisible church. The eternal church. But I have to ask you, what is going on when someone is not united to Christ's church in terms of being a member of the visible church? What is happening in that life and in that family? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. They're missing out on the benefits and the blessings intended by God from His Word. And, and they're left very vulnerable to the attacks of the devil. Next, do you see the unity of Christ's people is because we are His body? Now, that sounds almost like a truism, doesn't it? But that is where it comes from. He makes us one with Him, and that is how we are unified. We have His mind. We have his heart. Do you see, therefore, also that the power of Christ's people is because we are his body? And the fellowship that we have with one another is because we are his body. And the boldness that we can have is because we are his body. He gives us, by his Spirit, a mutual love and affection for him and for one another that overcomes and keeps overcoming keeps overcoming, and keeps overcoming. Next, 
Do you expect mighty signs and wonders in the midst of God's church? Do you expect that? Is that how you pray? I think we should. I think we should expect to see that. Now, we, we're not claiming to oblige God to anything. This is not name it and claim it nonsense theology. This is really just saying, do we have faith to believe that we are who the Bible says we are? And that God does what he says he does through his faithful church. Do you expect great church growth here and throughout God's church? Not just through swapping believers from one church to another. No, but through new conversions, through new professions of faith. Do you expect to see this? Do you expect to see the esteem and the respect of the surrounding world, even in the midst of great hatred from leadership. Come, Lord Jesus, be present in our midst, in us and through us. Brothers and sisters, may we so closely identify with Jesus Christ that it is as if we are thinking his thoughts, as if we are feeling what he feels, as if we are his hands, we are his feet. May it be true of us more and more every day, not just here at Foothills, but all of his church throughout the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice once again to hear your word, to be the recipients of your word and your spirit. We thank you that you've saved us from our sins and brought us in through repentance, brought us into the remission of sin, brought us into who you are, Lord Jesus Christ, and a love for you and a desire to be participants in your great mission of your kingdom and the service so that with every breath, every step, every heartbeat of our remaining brief vapor lives that we can be devoted to you and to your kingdom and experience the great blessings and joy of being like this first church, healthy, thriving by the outpouring of your spirit with you, Lord Jesus, walking powerfully, beautifully, wondrously in our midst, in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.